My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Hello everyone. Welcome to the first episode of PhDs for Dummies. Today I'll be talking to Summer Anyan, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh. She studies computational modeling and simulation, and uh, I'll be having a uh, conversation with her, discussion uh, about her studies and also just the general tragic of a PhD student. Uh, if you guys have not yet checked out the, the introduction, introduction episode, I highly recommend you guys doing that because in there I'll explain the format of the podcast. And for now, enjoy. Hi, Summer. Uh, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us uh, a few words on what you're doing at uh, the University of Pittsburgh? Sure. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. Um, at the University of Pittsburgh, I'm a PhD candidate. I'm going into my third year. My um, area is computational modeling and simulation. Okay. Um, well, that's you mentioned the the, uh, the modeling. It's quite a specific topic, right? Like, um, could you maybe explain it in, in more layman's terms so that um, people can get their head uh, around it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So it's um, it's not very complicated if um, we talk a little more about it. So computational modeling. Well, let's just start with modeling, right? So if you're building a building, you can make like a scale model of your building and kind of look at all the floors and all the little pieces inside the building or like a scale model of a house. You can put furniture in it and you can kind of have a better idea of what's going on if you build a simple model, right? So a computational model is like a model just like that, but it's on a computer. So what makes that interesting is you can manipulate things really easily. So for example, um, during my undergraduate studies, I did some modeling in heart failure. So there are several variables like the pressure in your heart, the stress in your heart, your heart rate, how much blood you put out in every pump, that kind of stuff, right? So these are all really important variables when you're studying cardiac mechanics. But what you can do is you can relate them to each other with equations. So once you relate them each to each other with equations that represent the physics of how they work together, now you have a mathematical model. And what you can do with a mathematical model is you just feed it to a computer, right? You give the computer, you can give it thousands of equations. Sometimes we use more like 10 to hundreds of equations. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when you have those equations on the computer, the computer can solve them all really quickly. Because if you tried to solve 10 equations at the same time on your own, it would take you years to yeah. solve them, right? So that's what computational modeling is. You take a physical system, you break it down into pieces, you relate those pieces to each other through mathematics or sometimes more statistical methods too. There's so many methods out there. You feed it to a computer, the computer solves your equations. And then what you can do is you can manipulate things really easily. So I can ask the question, if I reduce how much blood is being pumped out of the heart of this patient, how does that affect the pressure of their heart in like three months? If I have a good model that's based on the physical system, based on experimental data, those are the kind of questions that we can now answer without even 
going into a patient to get an invasive measurement. So computational modeling is a really powerful tool for biomedical research, and I'm excited to use it every day. So basically, it's a kind of simulation of, of, of a human body, and you guys are like simulating the processes uh, uh, So in, in instead of actually using a patient in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then it's the big, you just feed them big data and they, the computer makes like sense out of it, right? If I understand it um, correctly. So, so there are a couple of ways to do it. So the big data people are more on the statistical side of things where you give the computer a bunch of data and like you said, make sense out of it. For us, um, in my area, we're more physicists and engineers. So instead of giving the data to the computer to make sense of, we make sense of the data first and then decide how to give it to the computer. Okay, so in a sense, you're working together in a team with um, well, bioengineers, phys physicists, and um, I, I guess other people too. And you guys all have your own part in, in, in the research then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the studies that we're doing in morphogenesis, which is the formation of shape, specifically during embryonic development, there are a lot of people who are interested in those questions and we all work together. So it started with developmental biologists. They started studying like, oh my goodness, look at how the spinal cord is forming. Look at how all these cells are moving around. So when these cells are moving around, they have a genetic program. Their DNA is giving these cells instructions on what to do. But there's also some physics involved, right? Because if the cells are moving, they are generating force. They're pushing on each other. They're responding to their mechanical environment. So that's where engineers and physicists come in. And I told you we have a bunch of equations to give to computers. So there you can deduce that there may be mathematicians and computer scientists involved. Um, in our lab, we also have a geneticist. We have a biochemist. So it takes a lot of people coming at this, these kinds of problems from different angles to really gain some understanding about the system. And it's really cool because um, you get to hear from a lot of different perspectives. Like in my undergraduate studies, um, I studied bioengineering. So I was um, surrounded mostly by bioengineers, but it's really cool to be in this really um, multidisciplinary environment. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine that. Um, and uh, apart from the multidisciplinary, um, do you also have to work with uh, with multiple nationalities or is the research team, um, um, the majority of the research team is already American? Um, so, yeah, we do work with groups of different nationalities. A lot of projects we have going on are usually typically in the United States. But um, my advisor went on sabbatical to Amsterdam just last year, and he worked with um, Roland Merckx in his lab. He does a lot of computational modeling, is involved in several types of computational modeling efforts within this area. So we do collaborate internationally, and uh, that can be really rewarding. I know my advisor has sent PhD students sometimes if they're getting bored, he'll send them off to some lab in Amsterdam or to some other collaborator abroad and kind of they come back with a fresh perspective on what's going on in the field. Well, if I were, if I were you then, like I would act if I was bored so you can go to Amsterdam, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what is your part actually in this whole um, this whole thing, in this whole research? What is your part of, of doing the research? Yeah, so um, what I'm working on is um, kind of more in the mechanics 
area and I'm doing modeling. So in these sheets of tissues, before your spinal cord forms, that um, neural epithelium tissue, it has to elongate significantly and then fold. So if that doesn't happen properly, that can lead to birth defects and that's really bad. So we want to better understand what's going on so that we could possibly even prevent it. So um, in this area, I'm working on computational models of that initial elongation of the neural plate. And um, there are lots of questions people have about this process. We don't know, we're not sure whether the forces that drive that elongation are coming from outside or inside the neural plate. And we also don't know how the network of filaments. So inside each cell, there's a network of filaments that can actually contract and generate force, which is transmitted to the neighboring cells. We don't know what happens if you change that network of filaments in a specific way, how that would affect the outcome. So this is really well suited to computational modeling because I can work on modeling individual cells and put them together and test if I do this in cell A, how does that affect cell B? Or if I introduce an outside force, how does that affect how the shape of the tissue changes? So that's what I'm working on more specifically. So basically you're, you're kind of um, experimenting um, with different cells and how you can approach them uh, in a sense. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, maybe a more specific question on, on um, the trajectory of, of a PhD student. Um, how many years now have you been a PhD student? I am starting my third year. Okay, and um, the, the regular track in the United States, how long did, uh, will it take for you to finish your, um, your PhD degree? It, of course, varies person to person, but um, within that engineering sciences typically I'd say an average of five years. Okay, cool. And during the, these five years um, in, in the engineering science, um, is it difficult to get published or are there any requirements for, for, um, for getting published to earn your degree? Um, there are no hard requirements about getting published. Like you don't have to have X number of papers. I have a cousin who um, his PhD was thesis by publication. And by the time he had three papers and just wrote about them, then he was done. But um, here it's more about the process. Like, yes, you can't graduate without publications, but they're not saying you need to have like this many first author publications. So it's really based on your plan and your committee. So um, this past summer I actually did my comprehensive exam where I worked with my advisor and I wrote a research proposal, like in the form of a grant proposal. Like this is, these are my three specific aims that I want to accomplish during my PhD. These are the main questions I wanna focus on. These are the techniques that I want to use to try to answer some of these questions. So with that, the main requirement is you have a committee, you do science and they judge that you've made a substantial contribution or you have made significant progress in achieving those aims that you set out to achieve. So that's um, the part where it is actually planned because a lot of it feels like nothing's planned. You're just going in, trying different stuff out every day, seeing what works, what doesn't. But that's the part that's planned is what um, questions you really want to answer, what techniques you want to use. And once you've made 
a significant contribution, you go write your dissertation and you defend it. And that varies from person to person. And do you feel like that the, like that system works better for you? Like if you would think of maybe if you would have a different system in which you would have like you, you need to publish X amount of articles, do you think that gives you like would give more pressure on, on you as a person or in your PhD? Yeah, it sounds like that would be a lot of pressure to publish X amount of articles. I feel like then you would be worried about publishing the articles instead of doing the science. I mean, granted, if you publish the articles, you have been doing the science, but um, your goal would be different, right? Because if you're focusing on like, I want to do good science to answer this question. And if I do good science to answer this question, then I will get published instead of being like, I've got to get papers. I got to get papers. Yeah, I, But I, I, um, that doesn't mean that you don't have to get papers. Of course, like the lab is whenever my advisor needs to go to our funding sources to um, renew any funding, he has to show them papers that we've been working yeah. on. And so we have to have those papers. Yeah, for sure. I agree with it. I mean, the papers are a major part of the whole uh, of, of academia, but I think being able to be free in, in, in your research and don't really have to, these boundaries um, or this X amount of papers um, will, will ultimately like um, be beneficial for, for both the institution and the student, uh, him or herself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Um I was thinking, um, was there this kind of the, this moment in your in your um, academic career in your undergraduate studies where you were like, okay, I'm I'm this eureka moment of I'm gonna study, uh, I'm gonna pursue a PhD, or how did it come so? Hmm. Yes and no, I'll say. So um, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I got involved in research during my second year of undergraduate studies, and. Um, It was fun and not fun because, like, if you haven't been in a research environment before, you find that it feels really, like, loose-ended and you don't really know what you're doing. So I think mentorship <laughs> is a really big part of it because, like, my first year, I'm pretty sure I had basically no guidance and I'd never done anything like this before. So I was just kind of, like, wandering around doing random stuff and I was like, uh, I didn't really feel very motivated, right? And um, after that, just within the same lab, I started working with um, other people in that lab and um, I found a mentor that like struck a good balance with me. So I think that's really important because like I need some guidance, but once you give me some guidance, then I can run around and do stuff and get things done. Right. So um, yeah. I had a really good mentor and that um, she really inspired me. Like I felt I can do this. Anyone can do this. And, um, With that, I started doing more research. So like in my third year, I did um, an internship at the National Institutes of Health, which is um, one of the biggest funders of biomedical research in the United States. And it was really cool to be there. It felt like kind of surreal. I was like, am I really here? This is really cool. I did um, neuroscience research and that was very different. So I yeah. told you about computational work and that's like, you call that dry lab work. So um, at this lab, I did wet lab work. Like I was um, dealing with brain tissue and taking lots of images and mixing things. And I did enjoy it, but not as much as the computational stuff. So in my last year, I went back to doing computational stuff and I was like, I really like this. And then when the time came, I was like, I think I want to do a PhD. Also because I tried applying to jobs. And honestly, at that point I had 
all research experience and no like engineering job experience. Yeah. And I felt like I'd have a better chance getting into a PhD program than getting like just a regular engineering job. So was both like a practical issue of, of pursuing like going further in, in research um, and also just you enjoyed it, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Ah, that's really cool. Um, you mentioned the uh, the role of your advisor. Um, uh, I mean, I've seen uh, in a lot of people actually that um, are complaining or saying that their advisor kind of ruins their experience uh, as a PhD student. Um, do you think that would be possible too for you? Like, if if you uh, if your uh, advisor would not have been that much of a guidance to you? Oh, absolutely. I really truly believe that your advisor makes or breaks your PhD. Like I remember when I was interviewing for programs. So um, in the US you interview for programs. They usually, at least in my field, they like pay for your travel and your food and your lodging. It's really cool. And um, you just go to another school and you talk to several professors there and you learn about their program and you like have one-on-one -on -one conversations with the professors. Like how do you mentor students? What is your lab group like? Um, do your students have a lot of independence? Um, what are the hours like in your lab? Because while people worry a lot about the specific school they go or the specific program they're in, while that's important, at the end of the day, it matters how you get along with your advisor and whether they're a good mentor to you. So a lot of people have different working styles. Some people like absolutely no guidance at all. Some people um, like to have a lot of guidance and a lot of oversight to make sure they're doing the right thing. I would say that I'm somewhere in between. So I actually contacted graduate students who had worked with my advisor before, before I even started. And I asked, like, what is he like as an advisor? Like, is he strict about what time you're there? Does he help you when you need it? Do you find that he's easy to talk to? And they told me that he is, quote, as hands on or as hands off as you need him to be. Like, you can go ask him for help every day if you want to. If you don't, he's not going to bother you. And that's what I really like about my advisors. I feel like we get along really well in that way. As a, I feel like I have help when I need it. And when I don't, I can go off and do whatever I need to do. And I think that's so important. And that's advice I would give anybody looking into starting a PhD is what matters the most is how you fit with the style of your advisor more than your program or the school that you go to. Yeah, I think that's a very good point you're making that people should not just stare blindly at, at like the institutions or that they want to go to this uh, these good universities. But I think yeah, the uh, matching with your advisor uh, makes a lot of sense that that is, is really important. And you also mentioned um, working hours. Um, well, I think everyone always thinks or believes that uh, do, doing a PhD is a lot of work and you're spending a lot of hours in either the uh, office or, or lab. Um, how is that for you? For me, it's pretty relaxed. I go, well, right now I'm working from home, but um, if I were going to the lab, I would go around somewhere between nine and 10 and I'd leave somewhere between five and six and I'd take an hour, sometimes hour and a half, depending on my mood for lunch. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty flexible. And like I said, it depends on your advisor. So I've known people with advisors who text them if they're not there by eight in the morning and I couldn't handle that. So I'm really glad <laughs> I don't have an advisor that does that. 
Yeah, that actually sounds like you're like um, really chill in in a sense. Like um, it's not really like what I was expecting for uh, for a PhD student. But I mean, <laughs> if if you're getting uh, along, I mean, I think it's fine. Um, also, um, uh, I mean, the, the topic you're studying is quite specific. Um, I can imagine a large part of society does not really like directly has anything to do with it or has interest in it. Um, do you feel like it, it, you're um, by studying like such a specific topic, you're kind of in living in this bubble or in uh, in a space where peop- your maybe your family does not understand you anymore to a certain extent? Um, I don't know about that. So I definitely talk to my family about what I'm working on. Actually, um, during the shutdowns during the pandemic, I actually went home. And stayed with my parents for a few months, during which I did my comprehensive exam. And I actually like did my practice presentations with them. So I had to give a practice presentation, or I didn't have to, but I had to give <laughs> a presentation as part of my exam. And I thought like, oh, well, I'm here with my family. What better practice than to like talk to people, you know? So I gave them my presentation, I think a couple times. And um, they actually had really good feedback for me. And they, while they didn't understand everything that I was saying, they just had a feel for, I feel like you explained this a lot, but you didn't explain this a lot. Or you showed this video, like how does that fit into this other thing? And I think that helped me make my presentation better. So while they don't get the nitty gritty details, I feel like I can talk to them about my research. And whenever I talk to somebody about my research, I try to put it into context. Like we're trying to better understand birth defects and they have a high prevalence and it's a really important public health issue to understand and possibly intervene in structural birth defects. And um, also in this area, it's related to regenerative medicine. So you may have heard uh, a lot of bioengineers are working on fabricating organs or like customized organs based on somebody's own cells. Well, what better way to build an organ than using the instructions for how the organ was developed in the first place, right? So this is just really a relevant research area. And I always try to highlight that when I'm talking to people about it. As far as the siloing, I think that's becoming less and less every day because as I mentioned, the work is really multidisciplinary. You talk to a lot of different people outside your field, and that's really cool. But also, I think it's the duty of scientists to be effective at communicating their work to the public, right? Because this research is funded by the U.S. government most of the time. So it's based on taxpayer money. So we have a responsibility to the people to do good research and to communicate effectively about it. So amid the virus, there has been a lot of misinformation spreading about science, about vaccines, about conspiracy. Basically everything, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, basically everything, right? So, and you don't have to be a scientist to put on your thinking cap and say, is this information coming from a reputable source? It Does this information come from several sources or is it just one source that's kind of out of the way that no one agrees with, right? So everybody learns the scientific method during school, but I feel like sometimes you don't think you need to use it, but sometimes it's good to think a little harder about the information that you're consuming and um, be trustful of scientists because 
scientists are working for you. They're not working against you. Yeah, I think that's definitely a very good point. But I think like um, how I see it is maybe that um, this this misinformation comes because um, they might not be they might not have access to the same information. I guess. Yeah, I can definitely see that happening. So typically, when science is communicated to the public, well, first of all, people can access a lot of peer-reviewed journal articles just by looking online. But of course, that's going to be like very jargony, right? So science writers, yeah, science writers and science communicators come to the scientists and interview them. And they are really good at distilling things down in a way that can be more easily understood. So like if you go to a news outlet and you find their science page, um, the articles are written by science writers who are trained in making this information more understandable. Like if they're talking about a virus, they'll be like, this is what the virus looks like. This is how it spreads. I interviewed this scientist and they said that you should be really careful. So this information is out there. But um, what makes it challenging, especially in this day and age, is that this other misinformation is out there too, which is why you need to really put on... um, your thinking cap and think like, okay, all of these sources are saying that you should wash your hands. And this one place is saying, don't wash your hands. That'll make it worse. (laughs) So you probably want to look at where it's coming from, who's saying it, what are, is this a professor? Is this just some random person? And in that kind of way. So science communication, it's definitely effective, but um, it requires your own judgment and uh, common sense. No, I agree. Not getting stuck in a rabbit hole. Do yeah. you think there is there is a lot of bias in, in scientific uh, publications? Because I can I, I can see, I mean, if if a scientist works two, three years on, on something, or maybe even longer, um, he has a certain uh, incentive to present it in a certain way, right? Um, so bias, I wouldn't say figures in so much in that if you do the right experiments and you get a certain result and then you go to a publishing agent about it and they publish your paper. But you can still, man- but you can still manipulate kind of the, the experiments. Yes, no? yes, you absolutely can. And that's why it's so important. Um, scientific ethics is so important. I'm required to do several trainings in scientific ethics. I've gone to so many seminars where they showed Actually, um, publishers have tools to detect whether you've manipulated pixels and images that you're submitting to journals. So the detection is getting a lot more sophisticated. That doesn't mean that there is fraud out there. But as soon as it is uncovered, those articles get retracted. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that people are paying more attention to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you've talked about that um, the, your incentives, basically your motives to to pursue a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are your plans after you've finished your PhD? Do you have like some career uh, plans, or you just want to continue on doing research? Um, so during my undergraduate studies, I was telling you briefly at the beginning, I was doing some like heart failure modeling, like in the context of disease, and I really liked that, and that's what introduced me to computational methods. And um, in that vein, I what I think I want to do is to work in quantitative systems like pharmacology. So um, what that is, is very similar to what I did before, where you create computer models of human disease based on 
experimental data and you use those models to manipulate different parts of the model to better understand how a treatment might affect a problem. So within the heart failure model, I would manipulate like what would happen if I gave this person a heart failure drug, if I targeted this particular structure in this model. And then you would see that um, the extent of the heart failure improved if I targeted this particular molecule, right? So um, I think that's really cool. And I think there's a lot of potential for that kind of technology. So I think that's what I want to do is work on models of human disease to better develop therapeutics in a computational way. And that can save costs and time during clinical trials. Like if you already rule out drug candidates computationally, then it saves time and money. Cool. So you really you really want to pursue an academic career. Um, let me put, phrase the question a bit different. Then, um, uh, what skills do you learn during your during a PhD, or what skills have you learned um, uh, that that are not necessarily um, bound to your to your research topic or research uh, uh, field, but are still valuable for 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 you as a person and could potentially be used on uh, the labor market. Yeah, yeah. So uh, plenty of skills. Um, actually, that's something that's considered really important when you're job searching is at the end of the day, they know you have a PhD, but they want to know what your other skills are. Like, can you talk to people? So um, you have to give many presentations at conferences or even to your own lab group. And I think scientific communication is a really important skill that you do gain through the process of doing your PhD and explaining your topic to people in and out of your field, even like explaining your topic to collaborators who like don't know exactly what you're working on, but have some idea of the language of the field. That's really important to be able to adjust what you're saying based on who you're talking to. Also, um, something that's really important is knowing how to fail and fail miserably trying to figure out how to do something. I think that's so important because research, there are lots of questions. There are different ways to get your answers. And the saying is, I think, fail fast and fail often. <laughs> like find like 10 different ways you could answer your question and try to fail out of as many of them as possible because eventually you'll find one that makes sense. Yeah, well, like, have you been in like this kind of all-time low? Like, um, when was that during your during your research? <laughs> I'm not really sure since I do mostly computational stuff. I guess when my code's not working, I feel terrible and that shouldn't be related to my mood. But if I've been working on a particular um, part of my code for a really long time, like sometimes in months, I'm trying to get a certain technique to work, right? And if it's not working, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. Is this ever going to work? And, you know, then I'll just kind of branch out. I'll talk to my advisor. I'll go to the internet. I'll ask random people online. Eventually, eventually it works out. And it's good to know when to abandon something when it's not working. Like this is clearly not going to work. I should take a different approach instead of just kind of going down the same path if it's just not doing anything. So knowing when to let go and to be okay when things don't work. I think that's an important skill no matter what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah, I mean, you seem very motivated and very um, passionate about your PhD. So um, I have no... no. Um Oh, I think you'll carry yourself on the um, uh, in your field for sure. Um, <laughs> then the last question: um, 
when you've got like do you have one memory um of your phd adventure so far that you you cherish the most hmm. i am not really sure but i can tell you a funny story oh, that, that will do that will do <laughs> okay so um my lab group last year we went on a skiing trip and we drove to like a different part of the state and we went skiing And I had actually never really skied down a hill before. <laughs> and I was absolutely terrified. Like my lab mates were there. My husband was there. And they were like, this is a really easy hill. And I looked down the hill and it's so steep. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This was supposed to be easy. And it was just really funny. And I just started trying to go down the hill. And I kept feeling like I was going too fast. And I was like, okay. If I feel like I'm out of control, I'm going to make myself fall. So I made myself fall like 10 times going down this hill. And then we went back up and everyone's like, you know, kind of like, are you doing all right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing fine. I just don't know what I'm doing. And then eventually I was able to go down the hill and I was really excited. And then once I got to the bottom of the hill for the first time, I completely wiped out. Like I just fell like really fast and really hard and I just like was on my back and I was like oh my gosh what happened so um I was okay they had to take me up the mountain on one of those snowmobile things <laughs> and they were like it was super fun like going up the mountain on the snowmobile but then they were like yeah you should probably go get this checked out so I got it checked out and they're like okay you haven't broken anything so I was really happy about that And then we go back and I'm talking to my lab mates and they're like, what happened? And I just sit there and I'm like, you know what? It really, the mechanical properties of the snow were different. Once I hit that patch of snow at the bottom and they were like, oh my God, like, of course. Like, of course. <laughs> and I'm like, what? This is like how I interpret things. Like, this is the most reasonable explanation for me falling. And like, they were like, yeah, well, you know, that makes sense to me. You know, you were expecting a certain mechanical property of the snow during the first part of your downhill journey and then you know if it changed what are you supposed to do so I think it's really funny how sometimes we apply um, like our research techniques to everyday things like this snow was less stiff so my board reacted to it differently and that's why I fell and now my neck hurts and I can't come to work the next day like that kind of silly thing <laughs> So the morale of the story basically is like, once you're in a PhD, you're never gonna. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Um, thank you so much for for being on on the uh, on the podcast. Um, thank you for having me. It was great having. It was great. It was wonderful having you. And thanks. Well, that was a very interesting conversation uh, we had. Uh, I learned a lot about the things that Summer is studying and I hope you guys learned something too. Um, also, uh, this was my first ever episode uh, of a podcast and um, I feel like I'll be learning while doing so I'll just keep going making episodes, uh, inviting new guests and hopefully I can implement the things that I learn in, in, in future episodes. If you guys have any feedback or tips, uh, uh, feel free to reach out to me via my social media accounts. They are uh, in the description. And also, if you feel like you um, would like to stare on the on the show uh, as a PhD student or uh, alumni, uh, feel free also to reach out to me and um, take care. <laughs>